Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. And I'm Caleb Meyer. We're coming to you at the start of this new year, still in the midst of a global pandemic, and wherever you are, we want to say that we hope you are safe, well, and we appreciate you spending some of your time with us. Things continue to look a little different, and Ben, you have a story that kind of demonstrates where we're at right now. Right. So we recorded with John Caulfield for Storytelling Breakdown's fourth episode in February of last year. A simpler time. The three of us were gathered in a studio together, and John taught you and me to play the trading card game Young Jedi. We even got our own starter decks out of it. John was very generous. Also, good to bring this up given all the Star Wars-related news Disney dropped recently. They have a massive catalog of shows coming out of the gate. I was absolutely geeking out when I saw that. And the episode with John, we got to do the same thing, just geeking out about all things Star Wars. But it still has some moments that didn't age well. I was hoping to make it back to Gen Con in 2020 and see John there. Well, that never happened. I did get to catch up with John virtually later in the spring. We found a time to not just talk, but John was gracious enough to accept my invitation to play a couple games of Young Jedi. And we played things out virtually, the audio from which could then serve as bonus content for Storytelling Breakdown listeners. Hold on a second. You'd been playing for less than six months, and you challenged the guy who taught us the game has known the game for two decades, and at one time was ranked number one in the world? Yep. And how did that go? From a competitive standpoint, better than I expected. Playing with John, I knew it was going to be fun regardless, and he came in with what he called his Amidala's Blaster deck. Obviously, he was playing with cards from the light side, and in Young Jedi, you and I both know the most powerful combos in the game come when you can match up a character with a weapon that gives them a bonus specific to every turn that they are in play with that weapon. I don't know exactly how John broke things down numbers-wise, but the majority of his 10 weapon cards in the 60-card deck were Queen Amidala's Blaster. And I believe the majority of his characters were Padme, Queen Amidala, and Handmaidens, who could all benefit from getting a bonus with that weapon. That's a really good strategy. When we were messaging before we played, John sent a message that said, Gathering Handmaidens, come on girls, we're off to the shooting range for more practice. (laughs) That's really smart design, which we could expect from John. Our interview with John and everything we discussed with him when we learned Yen Jedi was over an hour long, and that was the edited-down version. He knows the game incredibly well. Now, you still haven't played Magic the Gathering. I've been playing that for years, and I know from playing other games with you like Smash Up or Yen Jedi, you're a mad scientist and a deck builder, and you bought... a few Yen Jedi cards after we recorded with John... So how did you counter the Amidala's Blaster deck? I didn't lean too heavily on specific combos, though obviously they're helpful. I've got, I think, only maybe one Darth Maul in my Dark Side deck, and he's a wild card, one of several. So you combine that with some droid starfighters and other cards that get a six on destiny draws. And you have a one in four, maybe one in three chance of getting the maximum amount of attack bonus on a weapon every time you use one in battle. That's a huge advantage. And that proved to be the difference. My characters went into battle with a weapon power advantage more often than they didn't, and that was a deciding factor in both games. So, when will we get to hear your battles with John? We won't. What? What happened? I closed the Zoom meeting and then immediately closed the app. I completely forgot the file needed to save, and it was too late. I did enough things wrong in the effort to salvage it that I was sadly not able to get it back. It's consigned to oblivion. John and I will have to pass the story along.
this episode, Ben and I wanted to cover a couple topics. After we wrapped production on our first season, we realized there's a lot that's been created and launched since then that we should share with you. We also want to talk a little bit about one thing that's been a big part of both of our lives. That is a type of storytelling we'll be hitting hard in future episodes, and that's also helped both of us stay connected during the pandemic. RPGs, or role-playing games. There's a lot that we're excited about. First and foremost is probably how far Storytelling Breakdown has already reached. There's a lot of places, and I will not be listing them all, just so I can avoid sounding like Yakko's World. I've Been Everywhere by Johnny Cash and Alphabet of Nations by They Might Be Giants also come to mind. Still, regardless of where you're listening, thank you. Ben and I would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at storytelling-breakdown.com or send us a message on the Storytelling Breakdown Facebook or Instagram. We want to hear your story. Now, neither of us is a web designer, but storytellingbreakdown.com is up and running, and it's a place where you can find all our podcast episodes. We're also doing our best to create a blog community on the site with posts from us, our team, friends, and submissions we get from listeners. Those can also be sent to info at storytelling breakdown.com. The website is where you can see more about our team, and it's also where you can find links to support our efforts on Patreon. There will be content available for patrons in the near future. Pandemic production takes longer. Right now, as we're trying to build up a community, we want to be more inclusive than exclusive. I'm working with Steven Stahovsky to create a series that we will be making available on Patreon. Steven has also been writing blog posts for our website focusing primarily on RPGs. He's got a few out right now that focus on his journey of trying to become a DM, and a couple others on what makes a good DM and a good player. In the time since we've launched our first season, two of the other folks in our team have also launched podcasts. Ella Abbott, Storytelling Breakdown's social media coordinator and my coworker at 89.1 WBOI, now has a podcast called Coffee and Cryptids. You're almost always going to hear really great content from people when they are talking about a topic that they care about that really interests them. Ella putting together a podcast on urban legends and folklore is a no-brainer, and you can find Coffee and Cryptids wherever you get your podcasts at wayneshout.com, and we'll link to it in the show notes for this episode. And speaking of Wayne Shout, the podcast Oh Shoot Reboot from Wayne Shout Productions founder and CEO John Dawkins is also available. In addition to helping us launch Storytelling Breakdown, John is an inspiring creator in his own right. So again, you know where to go and we'll share the links. Now's a good time to also tell you about what's coming next for Storytelling Breakdown. Caleb and I have outlined a lot of what we intend to cover in our second season, but it's not set in stone. If you have an idea for an episode or a story you want to share, again, the email address and social media are the best ways to reach out. Our first season spent a lot of time on comic book and superhero-related topics. One concept that isn't unique to superhero storytelling, but is certainly a part of it across all sorts of mediums, is crossover events. Heroes appear in each other's books and shows and movies. I thought back to some of what I've seen thanks to siblings and my parents, and you'll even have crossovers and everything from... Angel and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or Magnum P.I. and Murder, She Wrote. Okay, not a reference I was expecting you to dig out. Now, the crossover that's the best fit for us and what we plan to do is actually inspired by YouTube video essayists. I'm more of a DC Comics guy, but there's a series of videos about Marvel Studio Films and the X-Men called One Marvelous Scene and One Excellent Scene. We referenced the Marvelous series on our first blog post. The YouTuber Nando from Nando V Movies assembled a team of other video essayists, and they all did videos about Marvel and X-Men scenes from movies and some other pieces of media. So many of these videos are really well done. I was already a fan of Patrick H. Willem's Lessons from the Screenplay, Captain Midnight, and Just Right. The crossover with other YouTube creators introduced me to Hello Future Me and others that also do really amazing stuff. That's what we're hoping to do here. On our next episode, really our next several, we'll feature other podcasters. They're not all from Northeast Indiana, they're not all focused on pop culture, but we've made a lot of cool connections with podcast producers in the last several years and months, and we're so excited to share those stories with you. Now on to what we want to talk about for our breakdown portion of this episode. Ben and I have both spent hours, days, maybe weeks even, a lot of time in the time we've known each other playing RPGs or role-playing games. We already hit on the idea of gaming and storytelling with our conversation with John Caulfield, RPGs are the most direct experience of storytelling in games. As a narrative unfolds and a world is created for you to explore, you become a character in that story, in that world. This has taken many forms over the years, though the most well-known is obviously Dungeons & Dragons. It's maybe more popular and mainstream now than it has ever been, 
So Ben, what was your first exposure to D&D? As I thought about it, I realized it was probably from the show Freaks and Geeks, which some context, I believe that show is from, I think the year 2000, but it's set in 1980. And as the show's title implies, you have a couple different groups, a group of friends that are nerds or geeks. Uh, and you've got like John Francis Daly, a very young Martin Starr in that group. And then the freaks are kind of your your bad kids, the ones that are always getting in trouble with the teachers, the rebels, etc. And you have the actors who play the freaks. It's just insane. They had a young Seth Rogen, Jason Siegel, and James Franco. And hey, you had Linda Cardellini in there as well. So it's just an absolutely incredible cast. The last episode of the only season of that show that, that ever existed was called Discos and Dragons. So while one plot line focused on disco dancing, the other focused on the geeks and James Franco's character playing D&D. I don't remember a ton about the specific campaigns, though it's it looks like the game did as it existed in 1980. I think uh, Franco's character uh, that he played was named Carlos the Dwarf. <laughs> and of course, he got stuck playing a dwarf because of the way the dice fell. We've all been there. But I didn't like it's not like that planted a seed. Like I, I went from that and was like, oh, I really want to play D&D. But it, unmistakably, it was my first exposure to it. How about you? Yeah, I've never I've never seen Freaks and Geeks. But I'll have to check out that episode. It sounds great. My first exposure to D&D was technically not D&D itself, but LARPing, which is live-action role-playing. But that's kind of the more advanced version of D&D. And that was through the movie Knights of Badassdom, which I saw it years ago. I couldn't tell you anything about it other than Peter Dinklage is in it, and he's absolutely hilarious because he plays this stoner who thinks that their actual live-action role-playing is real. But I remember watching that and being so intrigued by the idea of creating a character and being totally immersed in it and, you know, actually becoming that character and acting out that character and living as that character. So a couple years later, when one of my friends actually got a couple D&D books, I was ready and right on board to try it. I had the biggest smile on my face as you were going over that because I have not seen Knights of Badistum. I've only seen the trailer for it. But yes... Dinklage sticks out like if I can if I can remember off the top of my head I think he had a line that was something like he's about to become a level 10 mega sorcerer I'm packing an ounce of killer shrooms (laughs) and there'll be monsters in need of a slaying huzzah or something like that oh my word yeah it just absurdly funny that triggered a deep-seated memory in my brain I totally remember that scene now so Ben what do you think it is that makes RPG storytelling unique Really, RPG storytelling and the experience of playing those games or running those games, it's amazing that it can feel like anything. And whether it's that's a board game and you're solving puzzles, whether that's a horror movie and you're trapped in a haunted house, whether it's a TV show or a fantasy epic that you really like, you can go into that universe and inhabit characters that can, in some cases, feel really comparable to what you are used to seeing in that world. If, if, if we're talking something like the Lord of the Rings, you can play a character that's similar to an Aragorn, a Legolas, or a Gimli. But everyone plays characters differently. And it's like experiencing those stories that you enjoy in an improv setting. It turns into the most interesting game you'll ever play every session with the right group. And everyone just comes in and bodies their characters in different ways. And you can explore any world you want to. Exactly. I think what's so interesting about RPGs is that it's totally freeform. Like, you can do anything you want. So you can tell whatever kind of story you want to tell and really tackle any kind of subject that you want to tackle. And that can be from super serious topics. Like, I've seen people play RPGs based in a high school with a supernatural bent to them, but it deals with the real emotions of high schoolers and going through puberty and all the struggles of that. And I've also seen games where people play raccoons that drive race cars. So really, the world is your oyster. You were in the room the first time I ever played D&D, and, and we're definitely going to focus on D&D a little bit here. But when was the first time you played the game, and what was it like? I think I was maybe 19, 18, something like that. And my best friend, Lucas Gerke, he got the core rulebooks for the fourth edition Dungeons & Dragons. So... We got a group together, and he built, like, an intro session for us to play and just make a couple characters and get used to the game. And it was a ton of fun. Uh, It was your basic, there's this little farming village out in the middle of nowhere, 
and they're having a problem and you guys are the adventurers so you gotta go solve it the thing that i love is the final boss was in this cave and we had to like retrieve this crystal but the boss of the session was this big cave bear and we really didn't understand how D&D worked yet, so it wasn't leveled correctly. And its armor was high enough that we couldn't do any damage to it unless we had a critical hit on it. So we're stuck there, and we're like, we have no idea what to do. But luckily, Lucas had put a trap in the corner, this like spike trap that would mash down on the ground, and then you could reset it back up to mash down again. So what we had to do was we lured the bear into that trap, and then everyone on all of their turns, just spam that trap until it was dead. Oh, my word. First off, just for clarification, because I, we never know what level of experience someone's maybe had with RPGs. So critical hit, you're rolling a 20 on your 20-sided die. And when I think back to the first time I played, like, I do just want to say like thank you to you uh, and, of course, to Lucas. And then uh, our other two players were our friends uh, Autumn and Eddie. And you guys were the experienced players and the group that had been playing together for a while. And I came in as a new guy. I don't think I'd had my set of dice, like maybe a week at that point. We went through, designed and built characters, and then had our first session out in the middle of this frozen wasteland. And I mean, I think if I remember right, we went, we played that campaign for like two years. And it was just so much fun being a part of that with you guys and coming in again as, as the new guy and learning with an experienced DM and with experienced players, uh, you, you guys just made that the, the best experience ever. Well, I'm really glad you had a great time with it. And it's been a few years, but let's talk about that campaign that we played together from start to finish in a bit more detail. So I played a pixie warlock named Moonleaf, who was an incorrigible trickster. He just loved to play pranks on everybody and had an attitude and a chip on his shoulder. <laughs> and if I recall correctly, anytime you rolled an Arcana check, it seemed like you had five or six ones on your 20-sided die. <laughs> and there was just always a chance that there would just be this absolutely horrible, magical mess we'd have to clean up when Moonleaf cast a spell. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, that was the, like, interesting twist I wanted to put on that character. So he was a warlock, and he cast a lot of magic, which generally means you want a good arcana stat which is your magic stat basically but i thought it'd be interesting to give him a really bad one just to make it i don't know more exciting like who knows what's ever going to happen when he casts a spell the perfect counterbalance to that because like also i should mention uh before i forget to autumn who played our campaign with us who also was a uh, same uh autumn who autumn schultz who was our guest uh, in the third episode of season one talking about uh, spider-man into the spider-verse uh she's an amazing artist and she did really cool drawings of our characters, uh, in your case, of course, uh, Moonleaf. And then my wizard, Heidelstone, uh, will include the art for both of these characters uh, with the podcast and when we promote it, of course. Uh, Heidelstone, visually, uh, was basically very similar to Loki, played by Tom Hiddleston, hence the name Heidelstone. And that's how creative I was getting playing my first character ever. <laughs> and he comes in as this wizard who has a very much, I guess, an elemental kit. A lot of my spells were ice and fire. And he was a bit snarky. He was not particularly kind, at least in that first session. I think I called Moonleaf like every bug name I could think of. Yeah, pretty much. And getting the relationships just off on the absolute wrong foot made it then interesting to kind of watch, okay, how do other characters react and interact as we continue to go through adventures together and kind of become friends? And I don't think we can do them justice, but we can try our best to explain Eddie and Autumn's characters. Autumn's character, if I'm remembering it right, I believe she was a Deva Avenger. Character's name was Amel Wentworth. And as we start the campaign, she has a very clear motivation that became obvious after the first few sessions. She's reincarnated and is trying to find the reincarnation of her husband, as well as the evil Deva that keeps killing them both or kill, or at least killed them both in their previous lives. I can't remember now which one it was of those specifically. And so she comes in with this built-in antagonist, this crazy backstory. Her husband had blue eyes, so she's asking every single blue-eyed person we meet in the entire <laughs> campaign if they are the reincarnated version of her husband. And that dynamic was just amazing. 
in just how much as we're going through, we know every single interaction with strangers is going to be complicated potentially just depending on the eye color. Cause I think autumn asked about that every time we went somewhere new. Yeah, she did, which was a good contrast to our fourth character who was played by our good friend, Eddie and his character was called Rokon and he was a dragonborn paladin, this big super tanky guy. And his goal was to resurrect the lawn dead dragon god, Io, which led to some really cool moments, some spectacular set pieces and like grand battles at the end of the campaign. Oh, absolutely. And from day one, like the first session, we're in this frozen wasteland. We discover each other. We discover this little hideaway. I think right out of the gate, that was when Lucas equipped me with my staff of ice which I held on to and leveled up all the way through till the end of the campaign. Like, I think I started with it as like a level four item or whatever it was, and then had it at the end of the campaign as a level 29 item, uh, continuing to upgrade the enchantments as we went. After we started out in that frozen wasteland, I remember we were teleported to the Shadowfell, which is not a fun place to be. And it's definitely not a fun place to be if you're a new D&D player. (laughs) And Lucas did a great job of putting us so close to danger and making it so we had so many places early in the campaign that we're meeting the antagonists right out of the gate. Like we could see the big threats, like uh, if I'm remembering, like, like the, the Marrow King and uh, the castle of Crethmill hold where he and all of his denizens are hanging out. And I, I realized I glossed over one of the biggest Heidelstone complications because as far as antagonists go, I told Lucas before the campaign, I just said, Hey, Heidelstone had an incident in an encounter with an enemy before the start of the campaign, and there's some sort of magical or mystical consciousness that is grafted to his mind, and it only comes out when he goes into his meditative state, which essentially made it so, because I was playing in Eladrin, every time I meditated for the two hours to get my full rest, I could potentially just start tweaking out and start this elemental surge that could hurt everybody. And we had to deal with that for half the campaign, and it gradually got worse until we managed to get that consciousness out of Heidelstone. And then at that point, we were set up for what became the end game of our campaign because the consciousness in Heidelstone's head was our big bad for the end of the whole series. And things like that are part of why RPGs are so interesting. You can make characters like Heidelstone and Amel and Rokon that have, you know, built in goals and backstories that are really intrinsic to the campaign. Or you can do what I did with Moonleaf, and his motivation from the start of the campaign was he just really liked pulling pranks and shiny stuff. Like, there was a really, you know, intense sparkly jewel in the villain's base, and that was, like, my goal was I wanted to get that. But then, as the campaign progressed and you build these relationships with the other characters you're playing with, your motivations change and grow, and now, you know, it's about this sort of found family that you create as an adventuring group. I'm not trying to make this reflection on our campaign all about me, but obviously I remember the experiences that happened to Heidelstone the best. Lucas made it so each one of us had a pretty clear enemy. Heidelstone's was a character named Selva, who was a wizard, who was just so indescribably distorted and twisted as a character. It was hard to perceive just even who or what he was. And then as we go through the campaign, we realize, wait a second, Selva is anticipating all of our moves with such accuracy. What is going on here? And then we realize it's a version of Heidelstone from the future. And that was some creativity on Lucas's part that was just amazing. I remember there was always something off about that villain. Because like you said, he was really weird and like knew what was going to happen to us. So there was a session where something happened and I made a joke at the table. I was like, oh, well, he's Heidelstone. And that was a completely off-the-cuff remark that obviously none of us took seriously and completely forgot about. But after the campaign was over, our DM, Lucas, said, oh, he was terrified in that moment because he was like, no, they can't guess my ultimate twist this early. (laughs) Oh, but that's so true, though. And then once we figured out, like, the fact that Selva knew that Rokan was going to kill him because Heidelstone was there when it happened, there were just so many moments that, that, that stick with you. And the fact that our campaign or our little group of adventurers did kind of become become friends and a family of sorts by the end even though i think one of my crit fails may have blown off a couple of amel's limbs 
later on in the campaign, and I still feel a little bad about that. That did happen. Yeah, but I remember when uh, ultimately Heidelstone had to go to the Far Realm. The Far Realm magic was what drove Selva down the path that he was on once we finally met him. And so Heidelstone had to go to a portal, walk through it into the Far Realm and close the portal behind him. Otherwise, there would be a time paradox. And after he had to say goodbye to everyone else in the party, I remember that just being a really touching moment as we reached the end of the story. Now, we'd be very remiss to not mention an important NPC that was a part of our adventure, who was this weird creature guy by the name of Poe, (laughs) who was kind of a pudgy, featureless guy, but he had one giant eyeball in the middle of his head. And the interesting thing about Poe was he had the magical ability where he could just make things out of dirt. If he took, like, a handful of dirt, he could, like, magically fuse and form it into an item or a device. He could magically mold it or fuse it into an item or a device that could do any number of features. And he was really our trump card throughout the entire campaign. So thank you very much to Lucas for giving us that wonderful NPC. If we're bringing up Poe, we have to bring up... I remember we had Dane, I believe was the name of the character, who was, I think, a bit larger wasn't as timid as Poe could be. Like, it was very easy to potentially upset Poe. Uh, Dane rolled with most of our party shenanigans. And he could just create weapons. Like, if you, he would just go somewhere and build swords while we're interacting uh, with different people throughout the campaign. But I do remember one of the combats that we definitely weren't going to win. You attempted to teleport us away and then teleported us like a continent away. And so by the time we got back to the battlefield, like four days later, we had lost Dane and it was just determined by a die roll. We were going to lose an NPC and whichever side came up, Lucas knew which NPC was going to bite it. Although I should mention, if I'm going to blame Moonleaf for that, I have to highlight, I can't even remember the boss that we did this to, but there was one boss fight where you had a spell or an ability or something and just with the way the combat order fell... You stunned the boss at the start of like every turn of combat, and then we just spent the next rotation wailing on it until Lucas had had enough. Moonleaf had a couple tricks up his sleeve. He had a lot of mistakes and a lot of misfires. He may have died a couple times and had to be brought back to life by our dragonborn paladin. But yeah, he he had a couple of tricks he could pull out every now and then. And in talking about it now, like it's, it's amazing just to what extent uh, so much of this campaign and the different plot threads uh, of it, even the one where... <laughs> As you said, Moonleaf died a couple times. I think there was one incident where you were like literally liquefied and we had to scoop you into a canteen or something until we could reconstitute you. I mean, it was just, oh gosh, so many amazing moments and characters uh, that we got to interact with, which again, hats off to Lucas for, for doing such a good job with that. And I think that's a big joy in playing a campaign of Dungeons and Dragons. Like you, you get this epic story that all your friends are a part of and you can share, but there's so many like inside jokes and little moments that you can remember that just bring a lot of joy to everyone involved. When the epic story of Rokan, Amel, Moonleaf, and Heidelstone came to an end, I knew I couldn't keep up the time commitment at that point, so I did not return for the campaigns that followed. What have some of your D&D and RPG experiences been like since Heidelstone entered the Far Realm? Well, they've been... Very varied, and I don't want to go into as much detail with these as we just did with our story of Moonleaf and Heidelstone. I did two more long-form campaigns with Lucas, Autumn, and Eddie. The first one involved pretty much an alternate parallel world, so we like went to this kingdom and were sent by the king and the government to like investigate this new world and all the things that were happening there. And a lot of shenanigans ended up happening. Eventually, we sided with the people in the other world and overthrew the government that initially hired us. So that was a lot of fun. And then the second one after that was basically the gods had decided that the world needed to be reset. And they had like a system in place for doing that. And it took place on this magical continent. You had to prove your worth. And you would sit on one of these thrones and be a deciding vote about what these gods were going to do. Aside from Dungeons and Dragons, I've messed around with the Eclipse Phase system, which is a sci-fi-based RPG. I've played Mutants and Masterminds, which is a specifically superhero-based RPG. And I've done a lot of work with 
Monster of the Week, which is part of the Powered by the Apocalypse system. Another system that I've worked with, but not as much as Ben has, is Fake Core. So Ben, you've DM'd just as many sessions of Fake Core as you played in D&D. What led you to the Fate system, and how did you approach it? I have to give credit here to the same source that is the reason I have the game collection that I have, and that is the tabletop series uh, from Geek and Sundry, hosted by Will Wheaton and also uh, co-starring Felicia Day. They have so many amazing episodes with so many games that I have watched the playthrough on that series, then later bought and added to the collection. And that's just another way that just kind of demonstrates games in so many ways are an amazing form of storytelling. Because you're watching a game you're not even playing, and it's still just entertaining as all get out. And there was one video where they're, well, as was often the case, they're playing a game I've never heard of before until I watched through that video. And they were playing the Fake Core system. And they were playing it with one of the designers of the system. And so I'm watching them play this RPG that I've never seen before and trying to get a sense of the rules and follow how it works and getting introduced to these strange dice that have pluses and minuses on two of the sides and one side is blank and how that decides uh, how you're going to roll. Which, side note, like it kind of blew my mind a little bit when I thought about it. And I was like, huh, your chances of getting a crit fail or a crit success in D&D are 1 of 20. Your chances of doing that in Fate are 1 in 81. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot kinder. Yeah, so if you botch a roll or have these amazing moments, like it's something you really savor because they don't come up very often. But after I watched that video, I started doing a lot of research on the internet and trying to kind of figure out and learn the system, and there were a lot of free resources available. But I still felt like, eh, do I know enough? Do I feel comfortable enough to potentially run this campaign because I realized as I'm the guy putting the work in here I'm probably going to be the one who's running the game being the DM and then I need to gather players and introduce them to it and I need to know it well enough to be able to explain it to them and so I again reached out to Lucas uh, who through a source he had at the time was able to get me the main book of the fake course system and I was pleasantly surprised that I had most of what I needed I, my research on the front end had been pretty good and I'd gathered up what I needed to design characters and sheets and had the information to gather a party, put together a first campaign. And the beautiful thing to me about Fate Core, especially starting out, was the fact that you could set it in any universe you wanted. Because you mentioned Eclipse Phase and how it's set in a sci-fi universe. Or you have D&D, which is fantasy. But Fate could really go anywhere. And being the big comic book guy that I am and the fact that I thought that the Suicide Squad movie left a lot to be desired, I decided to make the first campaign we did a Suicide Squad session. And all the players at the table came in, playing members as Task Force X, and going on missions, interacting, trying to solve problems, having people playing as Deadshot and Harley Quinn and Captain Boomerang and El Diablo. And it was just hilarious. And as we continued to go through different sessions in that way, like... We almost wanted to expanding the game, trying to break it. We did one session where we had like 10 people there, and that was a horrible idea. But we just had this massive battle with Task Force X characters. We had the rogues with Captain Boomerang, Captain Cold, Mirror Master, and then another group of supervillains they were fighting, and it was just total chaos. But going through that experience and building characters and building bosses and enemies for those characters to fight, there was one session that I was particularly proud of where the main villain was Firefly, who's essentially a guy who's wearing a suit of armor, flying around in a jetpack with a flamethrower. And I was able to make their experience of fighting him just objectively terrifying. And that was so much fun. And as we went on, we explored other mechanics. We realized, okay, if things are getting a little dark, uh, Fate has a mechanic called the X card, where if there's something that's... Uh, if there's ever a time when someone's playing and they're uncomfortable, if there's just something that they're like, eh, that doesn't sit well with me, they just touch the X card that you set on the table. They don't have to explain why. You undo it. You move on. I've barely had to use it because usually we don't go into that kind of territory, but that's a mechanic that I'm just really glad that Fate has. And since then, we've explored the Star Wars universe and the world we built wound up having a lot of similarities to The Mandalorian before The Mandalorian even came out. Like, as we were trying to figure out some of the visuals for our characters, 
we cast Rosario Dawson and Pedro Pascal, (laughs) (laughs) who both wind up having roles of great significance. Of course, then we also brought in other people that we enjoyed, just like uh, Adam Baldwin or John Hamm or Halsey, even for the visual inspirations for our characters. And then you're designing aliens and stormtroopers and all the things you love about the Star Wars universe. And now I have to thank you because one other thing I remember that we did was you got me an original AD&D module from Gary Gygax from like the 80s. And I'm flipping through it. I think it's, oh, I don't have it in front of me. I believe it's uh, The Lost Caverns of Shokanth. Yep, that sounds right. Which I was then able to like look up and watch videos on and learn more about. But I still am not the most comfortable DM in the D&D system. So I took that module and applied it to the fate system. I had my friends build characters that they could then play in a D&D world, but using the fate model, and it worked really well. And I've also done like one-shot sessions in the world of the Legion of Superheroes, so 30th century sci-fi superhero fantasy. I played the character Timberwolf, and playing him was unlike any player character or NPC or DMPC that I'd ever had to embody before. It was just so much fun putting him out into the world. And it's just, there's always talk of more areas and worlds we can go to and places we can explore because fate adapts so easily to all of them. And I think that is like really the big joy of the fate system. If there is a universe you like or a show you like or a story you like, but you didn't quite get just exactly what you wanted out of it, you can pick up the Fate Rulebook and run a campaign with your friends and tell the story that you want to tell in that universe. That's so true. And even just like, as you just hinted at, yeah, because we had moments like the Suicide Squad universe where it's like, hey, let's do this better than the movie did, or at least the first movie did. I'm really excited about the second one that's coming from uh, James Gunn. Or let's do this and then try to make it easy so like I I always kind of try to prioritize like let's get a good group together but also try to make it so the time commitment isn't as crazy and if someone misses a session it's not the absolute end of the world we can catch them up later and no one's getting guilt tripped into playing with you and, and that was great with the Suicide Squad it's easy to drop in drop out okay you have different characters on the mission that's kind of what made that work as well as it did but once we got to the Star Wars campaign everyone wanted to be there and just go through this journey from planet to planet escaping from Imperial stormtroopers, trying to survive and discover new areas and meeting Jedi. And it was just such an amazing experience running that campaign. We've spent a lot of time on fate and on D and D. What are some of the other RPG resources and other elements that you've interacted with that we haven't already covered? So there are literally dozens, if not hundreds of different RPG formats. There is a system for any kind of story or experience you want to have. There are the more mainstream systems like D&D and Fate Core, and there are systems that are more hard form. They have specific rules, specific settings, and specific classes, but then there's random fun ones. I know Wendy's put out their own RPG system where it's very based off of D&D and similar to it, but you're going around fighting monsters made from hamburgers and french fries. As I alluded to earlier, there's an RPG where you play as pandas and you race cars, or there's one where you're bears and you got to go steal honey. And if you're interested in those, the excellent, excellent Critical Role series on YouTube, which is immensely popular, covers both of those systems in their one-shots. And for those of you who are a bit concerned about the money cost of getting into RPGs and Maybe you don't want to buy all the books for all this stuff. There are plenty of resources for you to use. Most systems will have a limited but free version of their system you can download as a PDF that'll just give you the basics and you can start doing some really simple adventures and scenarios with your friends. And if you're worried about buying dice, you can just Google a dice roller or download any app and they'll have exactly what you need to go get started. Doing your research on the front end is huge. Because ultimately I realized, oh, I was able to get a pretty good grasp of fate without spending any money on it. And I still went back later and spent some money on the world of fate. But it was so fun to have, okay, we got the dice at the table. We've got in the... This is also just why we we miss RPGs in person right now so much. (laughs) But you have all those elements available to you. 
and you can yeah find so many good resources online uh, like D&D Beyond I've created a couple of characters on there and, and been able to use some of the, the free resources and information that's available uh, without spending a dime I just had to create an account and go from there and other resources that I have found are like the best ones are the ones that just make the game more approachable I ran a one shot fate session uh, for an event actually earlier well it was back in would have been February of 19. A couple of my friends showed up. I barely advertised for it. It's like, hey, I'm I'm doing this fate thing over at books, comics, and things. Come check it out. A couple of my friends showed up who had never played the system before. And I didn't want to risk... It was even just me just like, I didn't want to risk losing my dice. So I brought something different called the Deck of Fates or the Fate Deck. I can't remember exactly which right now. And it's essentially 81 cards each one showing the different results that you can get on the dice. And as we played through, every time someone did a check, they drew a card, and that was the die roll. Then to make it so that this actually does work out in terms of the same probability, we made sure that every time we cycled through the deck and ran into the crit or the crit fail so that you can make sure that that can always happen, we shuffled the deck. And that was a great way to, you don't have to worry about rolling dice, keeping track of things. It's just, oh, your character is attempting to do something. Flip a card. And that made things really easy and really approachable for new players. Yeah, and if you are a new player or you haven't played any kind of RPG at all, there are so many excellent channels on YouTube or plenty of sources online for you to get information about it. Taking 20 is one of my favorite YouTube channels. They have a lot of great tips for beginning players or even experienced players. And there are so many good campaigns out there that are very easily accessible. Some of my favorite include the podcast Adventure Zone, obviously Critical Role, and Bombarded. I know still being able to play RPGs, even though obviously it looks different and feels a little different right now, they've helped me to stay sane during the pandemic. How has the experience of RPGs helped you to hold together throughout all of this? What I've mainly been doing is playing RPGs over Discord. So Discord is a free communication software that's mostly used for video games, and you have voice channels you can chat in and text channels. I've been using the text channels to just text back and forth, basically in an RPG session. The Mutants and Masterminds campaign that I talked about earlier, normally, when we have a big session, you bring all the superheroes together and you team up, but then when everyone separates, basically you're going through your own issue run of that superhero. So you can just text each other whenever you have free time to play, and it makes it very accessible and really convenient. That's the same thing I'm doing with our friend Autumn and our Monster of the Week RPG as well. Virtual sessions, when you do still have everybody gathered together, it's been interesting. We've definitely had to modify the games uh, to make that work in some cases. Like Usually, I wind up just using the combat order, as we call it uh, in Fate, the notice order. So... This, the notice skill, and then there's some tiebreakers, but the notice skill is usually what decides what order you're going to be going in combat, and then we just play through the characters in that order as they're taking interactions and interacting with the world. So that makes it a little bit more disjointed than it would be if we were all at the same table. Still a lot of great conversations, so much great party banter, and it has, while it's felt different, it still feels close enough to playing at a table to still be a really great experience with everybody. Going through all of this has been a great opportunity to just study up, like go through and find new ways to build new game mechanics, create new characters, design new worlds, and take the opportunities where it's like, okay, I have a little bit more downtime right now, or I'm not able to play and gather as often with my friends, but the next time that we do, I can throw something at them that I know for a fact they have not seen before. So now that you've had time to brush up your DMing skills during this pandemic, What's something you're looking forward to doing in an RPG you haven't done yet? For as much time as I have spent playing D&D, playing Fate, running Fate, I have yet to build a completely original world. Which, if we're playing in a universe like Star Wars or DC or Harry Potter or whatever, the other players at the table know that universe so they know what the rules of the world are. And they can have certain expectations because they already know the lore and what comes with the setting. And if you're able to take them out of an environment that they're familiar with, then you get more of an exploratory component. And that's something I would love to do with a group once I can kind of figure out, okay, how can I make this world 
different enough and tell an interesting story in that place. And I'm not quite there yet, but that's something I definitely want to do at some point. And I definitely want to start dipping my toe into other game mechanics. You talked about Power by Apocalypse. Uh, Monster of the Week is a book I actually just got uh, this past Christmas, and that is definitely a new system I want to learn. And the fact that it's based off of two D6s, I mean, that is very approachable. You can usually find those lying around pretty easily. There's one other RPG system that I want to mention here. Are you familiar with Dread? I am not. I also learned about it from a video on the tabletop series from Geek and Sundry with uh, Will Wheaton serving as the DM, if I remember right. And the checks are not done with dice. The checks are not done with cards. The checks are done with a Jenga tower. Oh, wow. So anytime that you need to perform an action that could be difficult... You're pulling a block out of the tower and placing it up top. And you play through that as many times as necessary until all the characters are dead. Hence why Dread is the name of the game. Because every time that tower falls, the character that caused it to fall dies. So whatever action you were trying to complete goes spectacularly wrong. That is your crit fail when the tower collapses. So I don't know when exactly that will happen or what the game will look like, but I would absolutely love to play a game of Dread. That sounds super fun and really, really interesting. What is something you have not done with an RPG that you still would like to? I always thought it would be really interesting to run a campaign where the main evil or bad guys was a rival adventuring party to the one that the players are. So instead of like a big bad end boss at the end of the campaign, instead of fighting a demon lord or like an evil god or something, it's just this other rival maybe potentially evil party maybe they just have different goals than you do but i think that could be super interesting and allow some really exciting character interactions between the bad guys and the good guys the other thing that i really want to do and i've been working on it for a while is run a campaign where all the player characters are famous literary characters so sherlock holmes but he's been magically transported to the current world so now that player has the challenge to decide well how does sherlock holmes react to you know america in the 70s or america in 2020 and especially i mean you then have the opportunity regardless of when you say and that's also something i know i think about i haven't really messed around with and that's doing a period piece of some kind or going back to another decade which as much media as I've consumed recently that is just saturated with 80s nostalgia, whether that's something like Stranger Things uh, or uh, set in the 60s, because uh, Melissa and I just finished the uh, first two seasons of Umbrella Academy. Yes. You have these opportunities to explore different worlds, build these characters, and see what happens when you are playing someone who is exploring the unfamiliar. And that is something when you're the DM, you give every player at the table the chance to do. Mm-hmm. Ben and I have had so much fun talking and reminiscing about our past campaigns and past characters and future ideas that we have, but we're extremely excited and interested to hear about your guys' RPG experiences. Or, if you have any questions about getting into the world of RPGs, you can reach out to us at, wait for it, info at storytelling-breakdown.com. <laughs> Okay, so quick fourth wall break. We are recording this introduction for our storytelling spotlight guest before a topic has even been settled on and before our guest has even recorded the segment. Usually you write the intro last, but our guest for the spotlight has already been mentioned in this episode, and I wrote in the second blog on our website, he's actually responsible for introducing Caleb and me. Lucas Gerke, who is my oldest friend, my best friend, I love him to death, and Lucas is a lifelong nerd. He has been our DM for years. He's a super fan of Warhammer 40k, which is extremely nerdy. He's a wonderful guy. 
In addition to being an amazing friend, as well as a talented director, writer, actor, and musician, and the DM for so many of our sessions, Lucas is just ultimately such a fun person to be around. And a few weeks back, he and I actually played a virtual round of Keyforge, and we both had our cards and on a table and then just pointed our webcams at what's in play. A normal Keyforge game usually takes around 40 minutes with experienced players. Lucas and I battled for two hours. <laughs> Who won? He did. That's my boy. Thank you, past Caleb and Ben. Now that Lucas has recorded, I can tell you that we are about to shine a spotlight on the opening scene of the 2002 film Phone Booth, starring Colin Farrell. In watching this film with Lucas, one message that I took away from it is also something I've taken away from the pandemic. Sometimes a positive transformation can take place during a period of confinement. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll begin at the beginning. Here's Lucas. The opening is based around the the swap in technology and how in the early 2000s, cell phones were becoming commonplace. They literally bring up in the opening that it used to be a sign of insanity to see people talking to themselves. And now it's a sign of status. And I'm like, well, now it's more than a sign of status. It's just bizarre to not have one. Everyone has one. And it's almost like they knew that would be the eventuality because it intentionally dates itself. Like, it doesn't feel like, oh, well, this movie's not relevant anymore. Like, it doesn't feel like, oh, it feels like it came out in 2001 because it did and it's old. No, it's like the people who made the movie knew where things would go and found a way to keep it in its time and to keep it relevant for the future. You can almost liken it to horror films. For a lot of horror concepts to work, you need to either take technology off the board or set your story in the past to build and keep the suspense. You can't always put your characters in a desperate situation with access to modern communication technology. Phone Booth uses the technology of its day in that window of 2001 and 2002 to tell an amazing story. It doesn't try to be a, quote, modern movie. It was made in 2001 and tried to be a movie that took place in 2001. And they kept all the concepts that were brand new then and showed you that, yes, at this time, when this plot is taking place, this is brand new. And that's why it works perfectly that phone booths were dying out and now are dead. And they use that as their primary setting. They say at the very beginning of the movie that this is the last man to use this phone booth. And at first you assume, oh, well, duh, because they say that they're going to decommission this phone booth in the morning. That's not why. <laughs> and I think it opens with the song Operator, which starts off as more gospel-like. And then the song, in the way it was written, naturally moves to a more barbershop quartet type style. But then... As the movie takes you literally through space and bounces off of a satellite back down to Earth, just like cell phone signals, it gets to street level. And you see this quartet of guys street performing it, and it turns it into more like a street performing hip hop piece, which then gets backed up by the music of the film. And this is worth pointing out because it starts off non-diegetic and then shifts itself to being part of the movie's setting. And then, as it goes, the non-diegetic score starts backing up their singing, and then their singing fades out, and the score gets louder, and it helps take you on that road with Stu, the main character. And from that point, you're in. Like, you're in the world of the movie. Because it starts you off with opening credits literally in the sky and in space, and then takes you down to Earth, which is... I think very fitting because this movie wants to bring you down in a few ways. It kind of wants you to reflect and get nitty gritty. And so it follows Stu through the street. And before he even gets to the phone booth, which is the movie's namesake, he is on the phone with a bunch of different people. You get to establish literally everything in this opening walk. He's walking for like 10 minutes. You see what his occupation is. He's a publicist. You see what kind of person he is. He's a scumbag. You see his interactions with his, like, assistant, who's just this poor little lackey who just wants money and isn't getting it. Within just an opening credit crawl and watching this man walk down the street, you learn everything you need to know about him. He cares way too much about money. He's nowhere near as big as he says he is. 
that tells you the entire motivation behind what's about to happen to him when he gets into that phone booth. Once he's in the phone booth, the facade comes down because we have seen him interacting with clients, media, and we see what he projects outward. But when he gets in the booth, takes off his wedding ring, and calls Pam, played by Katie Holmes, that tells you everything that we need to know about their dynamic. When he's talking to the people on the phone, whether it's Big Q or whether it's one of the newspaper companies or magazines, he sounds super professional and like he owns the place. And the only time he acts like he's breaking down is when he is pretending like it's bad that they didn't publish the piece, which he really wanted them to. So it's all an act. When he gets in the phone booth, yeah, he takes off his ring, he kind of sets down, and he talks to her like a person. But he also, when the pizza guy comes up, he just cusses him out. And that's interesting because he kept so composed and he kept so professional and now this guy's interrupting his time with who he really wants to be talking to. And you can see that this means he didn't want to be talking to any of these other people. He doesn't care about them. He cares about his bottom line and he cares about them making him seem successful more than he actually cares about being successful. And when he takes his ring off before he calls Pam, that tells you everything. It's this tiny visual cue. And it tells you literally everything that you need to know about what's going on in his head when he calls her. And then when she says she can't visit him in the hotel, he starts being deceitful to her. He immediately starts acting like he had all this stuff booked and he rearranged his entire schedule for her. And like, it's, it's a lie. He literally says he has a meeting at this hotel just because he looks across the street and sees the hotel. So even within this deception to his wife of being with Pam, he's immediately starting their relationship with lies. That kicks off this entire character's arc where you understand, wow, that's not, that's something he shouldn't do. And then you learn somebody else has the same opinion as you do and they have a sniper rifle. When he first hears from the caller, the entire focus of the film seems like it's shifted. And everything we've seen to this point instantly makes the caller more frightening with how much about Stu's life that he knows. So he enters the booth. After he calls Pam, the, the phone rings, which... It's already weird. It's not impossible to call a phone booth, I've discovered, but it's weird. And as soon as he answers, you get Kiefer Sutherland's voice in the most chilling tones he could possibly produce. And he doesn't even address him. He just says, isn't it funny that when a phone rings, you answer it, but it could be anybody, but a ringing phone has to be answered. And he's got a point. Why did he answer it? he was planning on calling Pam and he finished the phone call. So why did he answer the phone? You know, whether that was curiosity or what have you, it locked him into the rest of the movie, just like it locks the audience into the rest of the movie, because that's really when the movie starts is as soon as he answers the phone. And you know, at some point he's really going to wish he took the pizza. Other cinematic observations. I think it's really incredible how, when it starts off, the shots are very wide. It's from the street looking at him in the phone booth. And the um, it's everybody else on the other end of the line is close-ups, except for, of course, the caller who you never get to see. But as soon as the caller starts talking to him, from that point on in the movie, the shots get tighter, the camera gets closer to Stu, the phone booth seems smaller and smaller. And literally, they take that imagery a step further when the caller calls Pam, and when she's that little window off to the side, every time he calls somebody, it's like a little window of their face in the corner. But when the caller calls Pam, she starts off as that little window, and the longer he talks to her, the smaller Stu's window gets in that opening sequence. And that's just a foreshadowing for the rest of the movie because it feels like the booth is smaller and smaller and smaller. Even as soon as the caller answers, or he answers the phone and the caller starts talking, you really don't know what you're into, but you know whatever it is, you're in it. And you can't get out just like Stu. <laughs> if we're just talking opening scene, there's not a crazy amount of, of technical work. There's subtle things like that, like boxing him in. There's things like the camera is constantly moving just like him. And if you notice, a lot of the time... Even later when they show like police officers and stuff, 
the visuals do a really good job of making sure you are looking at the phone booth in almost every single shot in the movie. The second he gets in the phone booth, I would say a solid 90% of the entire footage of the film is pointed at the phone booth, even if it's not actually looking at Stu. And the idea of having a one, a single set for the whole movie and it being so small and somehow you're still invested because the entire movie from that point on is driven by conversation. And I just think that's really rare and really interesting. Lucas Gerke, thank you for all that you do. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> one last thought in our first community update episode, please subscribe. Until we have our second season ready to debut, our release schedule will be a little random. So make sure you know when new episodes are coming. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout.